From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Okay, so let's, we're going to jump right into the study because I'm about to throw everyone here for a loop. Do you know that expression, throw you for a loop? It means I'm going to do something. I don't know if it's going to surprise everyone, but it's going to be like, why are we doing this? Isn't this Kabbalah and Coffee? Okay, here's what I mean. Kabbalah and Coffee, we usually study Jewish mystical ideas. But today we're going to start off by studying Talmud. Talmud and Jewish law. We're going to study the Mishnah. We're going to study the Gemara. And I'll define all the terms. I'll give you a little bit of background on the Talmud itself. We're going to jump in because the big picture today, listen to this big picture. The big picture today is we're going to be studying Talmud and then seeing how Kabbalah explains Talmud and takes what appears to be an intractable disagreement in other words, a disagreement that's very much stuck in disagreement land, as it were, right? Very much stuck in a, in a fight and reconciles it or makes shalom with the ideas. It's going to be dazzling. And it highlights what I think, not what I think. It highlights a truth that I believe is very important to emphasize right out of the gate. So before we do any of this, let me just tell you one, one truth. And that is, there's one Torah. That's it. There's one Torah. What I mean by that is, whatever you're studying in Torah, whether it's, whether you're studying the, fi- the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, or you're studying the books of the prophets, or the books of scripture, or the, or the Talmud, or the Mishnah, or Jewish law, or, or um, Jewish philosophy, or Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. It's all one Torah. And what that means is that even though they talk about different things sometimes, it's all united and all the pieces work together. It's a puzzle, more than a puzzle. The different parts of Torah represent different layers or different elements of the same idea. It's like, what's that famous example? Somebody, people have blindfolds, And they're trying to describe an elephant. And one person says, and I forget the example, so like, it's not going to come out that well, but one person says, like, one person touches the legs. I feel something, I don't know. I don't know what what elephant legs feel like, to be honest. But whatever, I feel something. Everyone's describing a different part of the elephant. But the bottom line is, because everyone has, is their area where they're, you know, accessing one person's touching the leg. One person's touching the, um, what's that thing? The nose? No, not the, no. the trunk. Thank you. I got to brush up my elephant game big time here, right? The trunk, and one's touching the ears, and one's touching the tail, and one's touching the body. Everyone's touching different parts. Everyone has a bit of a different description of the elephant. But that's only because everyone's operating in a bit of a different space. In other words, everyone's touching a different part of the elephant. But it's all the same elephant. So whether you're studying... Hey, Susan, welcome. Whether you're studying um, 
Jewish history. I don't know if Jewish history would fall into this. Whether you're studying Talmud and Jewish law, or you're studying Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, you might be saying, oh, it feels like this, or no, no, it feels like this. One second. It's the same elephant. Not that I'm calling Torah an elephant. But the point is it's the same body of Torah that just looks different when you put on a different lens. Maybe I'll use a lens example. You know, everyone's into, not everyone, but lots of people are into Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and all, you know, all the different social media platforms. And a lot of these platforms, you take a picture or a video and then you apply a filter, right? A filter. Like what kind of filter do you want it to look like, right? It's like you can apply a black and white filter. You can apply a soft filter, a bright filter, a filter that has like stars or sparklies. I don't know. I'm not, uh, it's not my forte. I'm just saying, I, I know enough to be dangerous here that, right, you can apply a filter, but the core image is the same. So everyone applies a, a bit of a different filter and the different layers of Torah apply a different filters. So we're looking at the same divine truth through the lens of law or through the lens of mysticism. What I'm trying to say is that when we study Talmud, we're also meant to recognize that there's, a, that there's Kabbalah here as well. And when we study Kabbalah, we're also meant to recognize that there's a little bit of law. There's, there's a crossover because it's all part of the same Torah. Mariana, do you want to jump in? One second. Yes, good morning. Good morning, great, great to, to see you. Here. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I, I never understand what, what really is like Talmud and, and uh, Kabbalah. There is any chance to, to explain or to put in a, in a different kind of lens? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to try. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to try to do that this morning. That, so what I just said is my first introduction. It's all part of one Torah. But now we're going to divide the buckets a little bit into the different categories. And hopefully it's going to be, it, it'll clarify. I will tell you that I am one of the editors on a new course that's going to launch next year called The People and the Books, which is all about the different categories of Torah learning. And that's going to do a really deep dive into um, all of the different categories of like Midrash and Talmud and Halakha and Kabbalah and just explain the eras, like when these, these works were created and who worked on them and how do they distinguish, how do they differentiate one from the other. I'll do a short, a very, like a much shorter version today because that will be like 90 minutes on each, a little preview. Well, yeah, I mean, it may not be a preview, but it's going to be a, a taste, I guess a preview. A taste of, uh, of, of these categories, just, just so we have clarity on what we're talking about. But the, po- but the first point that I wanted to make is that Jewish law and Jewish mysticism are really, they really are part of the same is unit. Is mysticism an interpretation of the law? One or one? Mysticism is not, a, is not necessarily just an interpretation of the law. Mysticism, Jewish mysticism, is the study of spirituality. So it's the study of Hashem, right, it's the study of God, divine energy, spiritual energy, creation itself, the process of creation. It's the study of the soul inside. It's the study of, of, of really all things spiritual. When you have an understanding of the spirituality, then you can also look at the stories of the Torah and the laws of Torah through a bit of a deeper, deeper perspective. So spirituality the I would say it's like body and soul. So, I mean, how do we define the relationship between the body and soul? Is it that the soul is the core of the body? You could say that. You could also say there's two, there's, there are two elements that work together. 
There's different ways that you, can, that you can look at it, right? You could say that the body is the body and the soul is the battery pack. It's like it, it inspires the body. You could say that the soul is the main thing and the body is just like the space suit. It's just the suit that, that the soul wears. You could say that the body and soul have two different, you know, two different realities. One comes from heaven, one comes from the earth. And, but they work together. They work like a team together for a certain amount of time. You could look at it different ways. So I, I think all of the above are, are accurate definitions when we think about um, when we think about Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. You know how does that? You know kind of how does the how do those? Um, you know what's the role of Jewish mysticism? So yes, it does explain the laws. It explains the stories, but it's not only limited to that. It's also filled unto itself. So in, in the morning blessing, when I want to say, share something oh, hold, very short. Hold, hold, hold on one second, Mariana. One second, yeah, Sindri. Uh, in the morning blessing, you know, we list a different mitzvot, and then we say, but studying Torah in right. them all. So is that what it means? Like it can be Talmud or... Okay, so Sindri, I'll, I'll repeat your question. So Sindri is asking, in the morning blessings, we list all these important mitzvot, these mitzvot that are like uh, amazing, super powerful mitzvot. And then we say, kulam. And the study of Torah is equal to them all. So the simple meaning of that is that studying Torah, which we refer to all the areas of Torah, is equal to any other, any other of the mitzvot put together. That's how important Torah study is. Um, but I think you're asking, Torah study is corresponds to all of them. Does that mean that that Torah study has all of those areas incorporated in it? Maybe that's something along those lines, and I would say also. But maybe that's more of a of an allegorical understanding of it. It means the importance, simply means the importance of Torah study. How it's like if you put all the mitzvot on one side of the scale and Torah study on the other, it would balance out. Even though it's just one mitzvah, but it's such a big mitzvah. Mariana, jump in. Thank you. I just want to say that when we moved to Atlanta, I, for 15 years, I tried to, to study Kabbalah. And here, everybody told me, no, you have to start for, for Talmud and right. but the Torah. And you open our eyes because you told us that we are, um, we are allowed to get in in a different doors. Yes, and exactly. That changed our life, and always I, I, I share that vision, and it's so beautiful that vision. Thank well, and thank you, thank you for sharing that. And yes, that's uh, it's it's an old, I would say it's more of an old school perspective to say that you have to be a master of all of the revealed parts of Torah before you can jump into Kabbalah. But already for the last few hundred years, the mystics have been telling us. That it's time you can start with this, um, and there's many exa- many stories about this. Like there's one beautiful example that the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, gave. He gave a parable because he got a lot of heat in his time. This is going back to the 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s. He, people were criticizing him for exactly this, for opening it up to everybody, and he gave the example of a king who had an only son, and the prince was very sick. And the doctors came in, and they tried to, many doctors came in and tried to heal the prince, and no one was successful. They could not find a cure for this young boy, and he was losing his life. One doctor comes in, 
and says to the king, I have a possible cure, but I'm, I'm afraid to suggest it. The king says, suggest it, of course, I want to hear the cure. He says, okay, there's one stone on planet Earth that could offer a cure, but you have to take the stone and you have to crush it and grind it and then mix it with a formula. And if the prince, because the prince couldn't eat or drink at that point, if, if a little bit falls into the prince's mouth, if the prince is able to swallow some of it, it might, it might offer a cure. And the king says, go for it. And the, 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 the doctor says, but there's one catch. What's the catch? It's the crown jewel of your, of your uh, it's the, the, the most important jewel of your crown. Are you willing to give that up to save your son's life? And what do you think the king says? <laughs> of course, of course. Take it, crush it, grind it, mix it. I don't care about the crown. My, son is in, my son's life is in danger. They do it. And they, they, they mix, make the formula, and they, they, give, they feed it to the prince, and most of it spills out, a little goes in, and he recovers. The Alter Rebbe said, because our generation, and this is going back a few hundred years, right? you can imagine what's going on now in 2022, because we're more, we, we, we are in more spiritual need than ever, because the world is a more complicated place, and we need spirituality. Maybe back in the day they didn't need spirituality, but today we need it, to, it's like uh, we, to survive, so the king says, take the, take, take the diamond, take whatever, take the jewel, crush it, grind it, doesn't matter, right? Whatever it takes to get it to whoever needs it and to inspire. And that's all of us. All of us are the prince and all of us need that inspiration to uplift us. The Alter Rebbe said this with regards to a specific uh, incident that happened where there were writings of Kabbalah and mysticism, like sacred writings, that had been copied and written and had been uh, kind of, I guess, blew away and were rolling around in the streets. So one of the other mystics that was a secret mystic came to the and said, you know, you're putting this out there and look what's happened and now it's in the street. So that's why he gave the example of the, the formula even dripping down the, the prince's mouth. Some of it may end up, you know, you know in, the, in the streets, but the main thing is that it goes into, that, that it inspires our generation. And that's really the point. The point is that there's access everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between Talmud and Kabbalah. What is Talmud? Where did it come from? What era are we talking about? And then we're going to actually study some piece of Talmud from the tractate called Rosh Hashanah. It's going to talk about Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. All right. So the Talmud was penned, was formally edited around 1,600 years ago, 15, 1,600 years ago. In around the year four or 500 of the Common Era, there are two versions of the Talmud. There is the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Most people that study Talmud and most of the times that you'll hear the word Talmud be, being mentioned, it refers to the Babylonian Talmud. The, Babylon, the Babylonian Talmud was written and recorded in Babylonia, in Bavel. Hence the name Babylonian Talmud. It's from that part of, it's not from Israel, it was from the Talmudic academies in Babylonia. How did Jews get in Babylonia and not in Israel? Well, this is after the temple's destruction. And it's in truth, after the first temple's destruction, 
already Jews had migrated or they were actually forced to migrate and, be, and they were exiled to Bavel, to Babylonia. And from then on, there was a strong Jewish community there. After the second temple's destruction by the hands of the Romans, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second, hence the name, the second was destroyed by the Romans. At that point, again, a lot of Jews made their way to Babylonia and there were very strong centers of Jewish study. The Mishnah is incorporated into the Talmud. So let me explain. The Mishnah is the first emergence of the oral law. What is the oral law? So when God taught Moses the Torah at Sinai, God gave Moses a written script. He didn't hand him the script. He said, this is what you should write. And he then also explained the details of the laws and other ideas. And those were not written down. Those were meant to be transmitted orally. At a later point in time, much, much, much later point in time, around the second century of the Common Era, so around the 100s, okay, the, the 100s or so, is when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the leader of the Jewish people at the time, and he lived in Israel, so he wrote a very compact, concise work called the Mishnah. The Mishnah takes Jewish law, organized by category, and he organized it and wrote it down. It, it comes with differences of opinion because at that point there were differences of opinion that arose, whether it's as to what the tradition was that we got from Moses or as to how to apply what we got in Torah to other cases. Either way, these opinions were recorded in the Mishnah. The Mishnah was studied and discussed for a few hundred years. And again, a few hundred years later in the four or five hundreds, that is when the Talmud was penned and edited. That is when it was put down in, in writing. The Talmud is an elaboration on the Mishnah, which is an elaboration on the Torah itself. So the Torah has 613 mitzvot. They are elaborated on, they're expanded upon, and the details are, are fleshed out in the Mishnah. And even more details are expanded upon in the Talmud. So primarily, the Mishnah and Talmud are works of Jewish law. Now, you will also find stories and anecdotes, and you'll find also ideas that speak to moral values and spiritual values in the Talmud. But primarily, when we say Talmud, and it's referring to the Mishnah and the Gemara, Mishnah and the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Elaboration, it's primarily a legal work. Yeah, Donna. Just to clarify, so Moses was given so Satan's asking, when did Moses get this communication? He got in the, the original 40 days and 40 nights after the revelation at Sinai, after he got the Ten Commandments, after God spoke the Ten Commandments on the day that they stood at Sinai. Moses went up the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, got a lot of the communication, but it continued throughout the 40 years that the Jews were traversing in the wilderness. The communication was, was an ongoing process. Moses, according to most commentaries, was writing the Torah, essentially, all throughout that time. It concludes upon his passing. So, again, the Torah includes, I mean, stories and, you know, values and everything, a lot of drama, but it includes the 613 laws. The Mishnah elaborates on those. The Talmud, or the Gemara, elaborates on those even further. The, the Talmud consists of thousands of pages of elaboration on Jewish law. And Again, the Talmud closes, that book closes, in other words, it was finished, it, was a, it took years to write, and it was a team of editors. 
So that, it, it's closed around the year 4500. So it's about 14, 15, 1600 years ago is when the Talmud is published, if you will, or written for the first time. Um, the language of the Talmud, excellent. The language of the Babylonian Talmud is Aramaic, which was the Babylonian Jewish language then. It's kind of like a, like Yiddish is to um, German Jewish, they used to call it Jewish. Yiddish, my grandparents called it Jewish, right? Like Jewish language. Aramaic was kind of like the, 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 um, the spoken word back, uh, the spoken language back then in Babylonia. Um, but the Mish- but the Talmud, I-, I feel like I want to clarify one point. I've mentioned it, but I want to clarify it like solidly. When I when we refer to the Talmud, oh, I have the Talmud here. I literally brought a Talmud. Show and tell. Okay, this is a volume of the Talmud. This edition is from Rabbi Steinsaltz. It's got a he- it's got a I'm going to call it Hebrew Hebrew letters Hebrew and English version of the Talmud. And on one side it has the original Talmudic pages. It's hard to see. We have very poor lighting here. So. This is what the Talmud, Talmudic pages look like in the Hebrew. And then on the other side, it starts from the other side, there is the English side, which I keep on opening up the pages. But from the English. So it's got a, the Hebrew and the English translations. I did not study from an English translation. We studied only from the Hebrew. Studied only from the Hebrew. I'm going to take out this cover because it's a little bit getting in the way and making lots of noise for me. Um, but wait, before you grab it, I just want to show one thing about the Talmud. Okay? Here's what the Talmudic page looks like. And we're going to pass it around. Okay? Here's what the Talmud page looks like. The, in, the, in the middle, in the center, that is the Talmudic text in Aramaic. Around the sides are commentaries. The inside margin is always Rashi. You know Rashi? Yeah. Rashi is our favorite t- uh, biblical commentary. Guess what? He had a lot of time on his hands. He wrote a commentary on, the whole, on the whole, essentially the whole Talmud. This guy, Rashi is the bomb. Rashi is like, you can't imagine Rashi's scholarship. Rashi wrote the definitive Talmudic commentary. Imagine one guy who writes the definitive commentary on Torah and Talmud. It's unbelievable. The scholarship is absolutely d- dazzling. So Rashi is always on the inside margins. Whatever page you're on, just look for the binding, right? Look for the inner crease. Rashi's on the inside. On the outside of every Talmudic page, the outside is Tosafot. Tosafot are the grandsons of Rashi. Rashi had daughters. Their sons were also major. They were French. The Talmudists were... Rashi was also French. Rashi was French, and his grandsons were French. The French Talmudists, they were called the Tosafists. They wrote a commentary. There's several of them. And they collaborated to write a commentary called Tosafot, which either fills in pieces that were not covered by Rashi, or, oftentimes disagreeing or putting a, a different spin on Rashi's commentary. Ramban is not a Tosafist. He was not one of the grandsons. He was also major commentary around that era a little bit later, but he's not one of the, he's not one of the grandsons. He's not Mishpacha. Ramban? No. Not, not to my knowledge. I don't believe Ramban was. Here, grab, grab, take a look at this. And you can pass it down as well. Yeah. I just think the technology we have the term first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. Innovative thing. And just, I mean, it makes me think of all these comments. You know, they were the first ones. Right. So it's fun. So Don is asking the question, like, hold on. These commentaries, they, they're, the, these, they sound like the first 
Welcome, welcome. They sound like the first mover advantage. They sound like the ones that got in early. You're right. In fact, that era of, of commentary, Rashi, Tosvot, Ramban, Ramban, Ritva, Rashba, Ran, I'm giving you a lot of names here, Talmud commentaries. They're all called the Rishonim. You know what Rishonim means? The first ones. Like Rosh Hashanah, Rishonim are like, Rishon means first. They were the early ones, the first ones. They were the first, the early commentaries. But what if, you know, fast forward a few hundred years or even today, yeah. you know, if they hadn't done that, then there might have been different perspectives. There still are different perspectives. Don't worry, there are plenty of perspectives. Trust me. You have the, 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 the layers of Talmudic commentary and scholarship are absolutely dazzling. Hey guys, welcome, welcome. It's good to see you. It's, it's incredible because you have the Rishonim, then you have Acharonim, which are the, the era that comes after that. And then you have, you have hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries and generations of scholarship that builds off of each other, that disagrees with each other. Trust me, the disagreements are not going away. All right, Michael, jump in. So, so I, have a, I have a question, and, and uh, you know, maybe you're going to talk about this. You mentioned Midrash before. Yes. And, and uh, I, I just want to understand, I, I, I'm curious, you know, not curious, but, but I'd like to know what your um, thought is on Midrash. Because, you know, Midrash is always given to us as, as truth or, or fact. And yet, I, I, and I hope you don't think this is heretical, but to me, it often seems like speculation. Like someone said, you know, I think this is what might have happened. I'll say this is what happened, and therefore I can I could use that to explain what's going right. on. Right. Good. So, so which is it? Is is it, is this actually? I mean, how do they know these things happened? Right. Excellent question. This, does this come from oral tradition, or is this just? You know, Excellent question. Excellent question. So when it comes to midrash, first of all, midrash is not monolithic. So midrash, there are, there are multiple forms of midrash. There's halachic midrash. There's agadic midrash. In other words, there's midrash that is halachic, legal in nature. There's agadic midrash, which means it's homiletical in nature. It's more like drush. It's like a sermon type thing, where you're kind of you know, playing fast and loose a little bit. So there's different types of midrash. It's not monolithic. So it's really a hard question to answer, but I will say that all of midrash, the Midrash, by the way, was penned in the same time as the Mishnah. Midrash is not Mishnah, but it's at the same time that the Mishnah was penned. That's around the same time that the Midrash, although it's not exactly true because the Midrash spans a, 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 pretty, a pretty large amount of time, but the early Midrashim come from that era as well. Um, they're all well-sourced in either the oral tradition or in what we refer to as the rules of, well, not that way, here, grab these, the rules of... Um, Hermetical, is that the right word? Uh, the rules of interpretation, there's, there's a system of, of, um, of rules. 13 rules of how to interpret and elaborate on Torah. Pass one down, if you don't mind, to, to Don. You have one of these? Oh, okay. Um, well, that's interesting. And that is how they are derived. Yeah, so, you know, it, it would depend on which midrash you had in mind to answer a specific question, but that's kind of the general point. Like, the general idea is, like, if we have a backstory, like, oh, turns out that here's a story behind the scenes, that's usually based on tradition. And then, you know, like, we're, like, uh, generation to generation, a tradition of what really happened. The Torah says this, but here's, you know, here's, here's what happened. And then you have other, other ideas that are derived using these tools of interpretation. Um... The Midrash gets a rap of being bizarre and out there, but most Midrash is not bizarre and out there. I think the ones that get a lot of airtime are the ones that are a little bit more bizarre and out there. 
Um, why? I don't know. But uh, it's you're asking a really good question, and I'm, I'm so excited because I see the real need for that course. There's a 90-minute session that I helped edit on exactly Midrash, and it goes through the different types, and it use, brings up samples of them, and we pull out some of the bizarre ones to explain what's really going on behind the scenes, and Midrash is not meant to be learned, studied like Torah. Torah is meant to be studied on literally and allegorically. Some Midrash is only meant to be, some are only meant to be studied allegorically. So you have to be careful when we study Midrash okay. to know what it is, where it comes from, how to study it, and how they got that from, and where they got that from. So you're asking a really good question, and I'm speaking around the topic, but can't no, really think, jump think, into it know, now. It sounds like you're, you're, I, I would be interested in your course. And I'll be quite honest, from my perspective, and, and I am nowhere near, I mean, I, I don't consider myself a Torah or Talmudic scholar of any means. But I do know that when I read, sometimes when I see Midrash, it's like, well, okay, I kind of like maybe de-emphasize that in right. my thinking and my, my you know, right. analysis. Good. So. Okay, good. So there's a good space for this course. All right. But it's not coming up imminently. It's, it's still in the editorial stage. I'm still, I actually, we're having a meeting this Monday about uh, lesson six of that course, which is on, maybe it's on Kabbalah. I'm not sure. I have to take a look at it again. Can we find the 12? Uh, the 13 principles are in the Siddur, the prayer book. In the morning, we say it right before Hodu. Every morning we say it in the in the in the uh, pregame prayers before chakras, before yeah, like um, it's on page. If we had to sit here, like 26, 27, 25, 26, 27, 28, One of those pages in the blue Chabad Siddur. It begins with Rabbi Yishmael Emer B'Shlesh Esrimidus Haterin Dreshes. Rabbi Yishmael says there are thirteen ways that the Torah is expounded upon. Kavachem Rakzir Shav Binyan Mechazavechad, etc. It goes through a list of 13, 13 ways of interpretation. Yaakov, jump in. Um, all right, I have an example for Midrash um, where Jacob and Esau finally meet, and then Esau kisses Yaakov, but the interpretation is that he didn't kiss him. He tried to bite him to death by, right. uh, by, by, by uh, choking him, by biting his jugular like a lion would, you know, bite a, uh, a deer. Right. And then um, Yaakov's uh, neck turned to marble. And when right. we get to those types of fantastic... Um, imagery and symbolism it it, it 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 really is almost no different from any other um early cultures like native american the you know the rabbit was kicking the blood clot along the ground and it turned and it combined with dirt and turned into a human and the rabbit made the human and that's how in the sun fell down and that's how we got the stars and you know blah 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 it just seems like it's it's on that level of um a lot of uh yeah, like no, it's, it's a good example. So right, let me jump in. It's a good example. Um, and I think that's what I was saying to Michael before. You have to yeah. know how to read it and how to understand it. Right? If the Torah says something, there's a, you have to learn Torah with Pshat also. There's a, simple, there's a straightforward way of learning it. You cannot take a verse out of its simple meaning. You can't only go allegorical. When it comes to Midrash, however... A lot of Midrash is, starts off as allegorical. So the concept of, of Esau trying to bite Yaakov, first of all, that's not fantastical. That makes a lot of sense. He was, but the fact that his neck turned to marble, so now here's the question. When the rabbis wrote that, did they mean literally it became a marble pillar? Or did it mean that here you have somebody who's trying to hurt someone else, and it didn't happen? In other words, right. if you would say that somebody, you know, tried to victimize someone else, but they... They stood up to them like a wall, you know, like in hockey. I'm a hockey fan, right? As you may know. Penguins are in the playoffs right now. That goalie, he's like a wall, 
right? He's, he's a wall in front of the puck. He's a wall? He's like, not a wall. He's just blocking every shot. His neck turns to marble means that he wasn't able to be harmed. Now, what happened? He bit him the wrong way, or he couldn't bite him. or I don't know exactly what happened. The point is, he wasn't harmed. So, on some level, he had the strength to not be harmed. And maybe it means not a literal bite. Maybe it means an allegorical bite with an allegorical strength. Maybe it means you try to influence him in a negative way, essentially biting him. And maybe his inner strength, Yaakov's strength, repelled Esau's advances of trying to, like, you know, exactly. body up to him. So it becomes very important, and that's a good example of a midrash, that when you study it literally, I think to Michael's point and to your point, it sounds just like, okay, I guess we're just making up stuff, right? But you got to, so midrash is a little bit of a different type of study where it's not always the literal, it's more, it's, some, it's oftentimes, again, certain types of midrashim. There's the homiletical ones and then the halakhic ones. The halakhic ones, the legal ones, are legal. Okay, good. Now this gives us, oh, but I wanted to mention one more thing as part of the, very quickly, before we jump into the Talmud. So when, when, when I say the word Talmud, okay, and I have here the cover, Koren, that's the publisher of this one, Talmud Bavli. Talmud, is the, Talmud Bavli means the Babylonian. So this is the Koren edition. Koren is a publisher. It's a, it's a publisher, right? Koren, Talmud Bavli, the Noe edition. I guess that was a sponsor. And this is Tractate Beitzah and Rosh Hashanah. On the side, com- commentary by Rabbi Adin, Evan Yisrael, Steinsatz. Okay, I'm explaining the cover here. But here's the, here's the point. Talmud is what, we, is what we call the whole book. The whole book is called Talmud. But in the Talmud, there's two sections. There's two pieces. And you'll see this very clearly in the handouts that I gave you, in the handouts that I'll, in the, in the study guide that I'm putting it up, I'll put up on the screen in a moment. In the Talmud, there's two parts. There's Mishnah and Gemara. The Mishnah is what was authored by Rabbi Yehuda Anasi in the first and second, in the second century. That's the original compilation of the oral law. The Gemara is the elaboration on the Mishnah, and together it forms the Talmud. Are you with me on this? And the separation of errors is about three or four hundred years. Okay, you have Mishnah and, 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 and Gemara. You'll see this. Just gonna give you, I'm just giving you the terms, and you'll see this as I pull up the screen. Does everybody have a copy of, of the handout that I, that I prepared? Okay, I prepared a handout from Tractate Rosh Hashanah, which is, Tractate means the book, um, subject matter. It's the book, the Talmudic Tractate, the Talmudic section, that, that speaks about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, of course, we know Rosh Hashanah as. Help me out here. What is Rosh Hashanah? The? Head of the year. Right, the Jewish New Year, the head of the year. But as the Mishnah tells us, in the opening of Rosh Hashanah, there's not just one Rosh Hashanah, there are four Rosh Hashanahs. And if you're wondering what are the four Rosh Hashanahs, welcome to the party, because that's exactly what we're going to explore right now. All right, I'm sharing my screen. Here we have it. Kabbalah and Coffee, Overcoming Folly, Discourse 20, and this is a supplementary text sheet. Four New Year's. The Mishnah says, oh, and by the way, the, the text that I have here is taken from this, from this book that I have in front of me, the book that's going around. It's, it's the Mishnah together with Rabbi Steinsaltz's commentary, and um, I just put everything in there, so it's a little bit longer than the actual Mishnah. It's not a literal translation, but it's translation with a bit of an explanation together. I figure it'll be easier to read that way. They, oh, man... First word is a typo. 
I can, I can fix it here on, on my uh, Microsoft Word document. There are four days in the year, not they are four, there are four days in the year that serve as the new year, each for a different purpose. You ready? Number one, on the first day of Nisan is the new year for kings. What does that mean, the new year for kings? It is from this date that the, that the years of a king's rule are counted. So if you want to know how many years has the king reigned, you don't go by the date of the inauguration. You go by Nisan. You with me on this? Nisan is now the objective. Rosh Chodesh Nisan is, is when the king's years are counted. And the first of Nisan is also the new year for the order of the festivals as it determines which is considered the first festival of the year and which the last. Passover, Pesach, which is the first festival in the month of Nisan, is festival one. And from there, the other festivals roll out. Let's continue. That's, that's Rosh Hashanah number one, the first of Nisan. On the first of Elul is the new year for animal tithes. What are animal tithes? What does that mean? Here we go. All the animals born prior to that date belong to the previous tithe year and are tithed as, as a single unit, whereas those born after that date belong to the next tithe year. There was, again, in ancient times, there's a biblical mitzvah to tithe your animals. If you have a farm with animals... So tithe is 10%. You give 10% of your animals to the miser, typically went to the levy, to the Levite. So you give 10% of your animals. But you give that on an annual basis. But when, which, of animals that are born. But which animals belong to which year of tithe obligation? So that cutoff, that determination, that mark is the first day of El. Now, of course, not of course, but there's a dispute here in the Mishnah. Rabbi, Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Shimon say the new year for animal ties is not the first of Elul, but rather is on the first of Tishrei, which is what we call our Rosh Hashanah. And that's exactly what the Mishnah is going to get to next. On the first of Tishrei, by the way, that's what we have in our calendars of Rosh Hashanah. That is the new year for counting years. This year is 5782. Come Tishrei 1. The next Tishrei run, it's going to be 5783. So the calendar year turns on the first day of Tishrei. As we'll how does this relate to, we just recently learned about the new year, you know, with the, from the, the, the moon cycle? What do you mean? The first. Oh, the first of the months of the year? No, as no, the, there's another new year for the moon, with the moon cycle. Yeah, yeah, that we had it. That's the first of Nisan. That's what it says in the first of Nisan, right, is the new year for the order of festivals as it determines which is considered the first festival of the year because that goes by the months and the first of the months of the year is the month of Nisan and so that's where that comes in in that first paragraph. Okay, now the first, back to the third paragraph. The first of Tishrei is the new year for counting years as will be explained in the Gemara. The, the Gemara will elaborate on this. For calculating sabbatical years and jubilee years, i.e. from the first of Tishrei there's a biblical prohibition to work the land during these years. So, this year is a sabbatical year, as you may know. This year is a Shemitah year. In Israel, many farms are not being worked. When does the sabbatical year begin? The first day of Tishrei. That's when the biblical pro prohibition to work the land commences. It is also, the first of Tishrei is also the new year for planting, for determining the years of Arla, which we read in yesterday's Torah portion, the three-year period from when a tree has been planted during which time its fruit is forbidden. That, that mark or that the, the, the years are determined by 
the first day of Tishrei, and for tithing vegetables, not animals, animals we had a different date, for tithing vegetables as vegetables picked prior to that date cannot be tied together with vegetables picked after that date. They belong to two different years. Let's continue for the final New Year's. On the first of Shvat is the New Year for the tree. The fruit of a tree that was formed prior to that date belongs to the previous tithe year and cannot be tied together with fruit that was formed after that date. This ruling is in accordance with the statement of Beit Shammai, but Beit Hill will say, and we, this is what we follow, and this is what everybody knows, the new year for trees is the 15th of Shvat, which we call Tu B'Shvat. If you've ever heard of the word Tu B'Shvat, it means the 15th of Shvat. It's the new year for trees. Where does that come from? The first Mishnah in tractate Rosh Hashanah, page 2a in Rosh Hashanah. So that comes from right here. You guys with me so far? Let me just uh, check in for a second. Stop sharing. So, essentially, the opening Mishnah of Tractate Rosh Hashanah talks about Arba Rosh Hashanah, four New Years. We have four different periods that begin new periods in time for various things. So, we gave an example of, we, get, we, we, we went through all four. So, we have... Um, We had the uh, New Year's for kings. When, do, when does the king, when does the reign of a king begin? That was uh, Nisan. When the, do animal ties begin? When does that year, calendar year, begin? The first of El. When, for counting years, when does that begin? The first day of Tishrei. For trees, either the first of Shvat or the 15th of Shvat. So we have different, different times that are called Rosh Hashanah. All right. So far, so good. The Gemara elaborates on the Mishnah. That's literally the job of the Gemara, as I explained before. The Gemara elaborates on the Mishnah. The Mishnah was penned in the 2nd century. The Gemara was penned in the 4th or 5th, I don't know, in the 400s and 500s around that time. The Gemara elaborates on the Mishnah in the following way, and you're, we're going to see an example of how the Gemara um, follows the Mishnah right here. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in. Okay, it's on the handout. We're continuing in the handout. I just just thumbs up. Can you guys see this on, online? Yes, it's coming up. The, the paper. Okay, Judgment Day. You guys with me? Judgment Day, Gemara. So the Mishnah that I just quoted is on page 2A of the Talmud. Fast forward to page 8A. I pulled out three pieces of Talmud. 2A, 8A, and 16A. So, turn, so on page 8A in the, in the Gemara, it says the following. The Gemara quotes the Mishnah, as it always does. It is taught in the Mishnah. We just read this. On the first of Tishrei is the new year for counting years. The Gemara asks, with regard to which law is this stated? In other words, what does it mean that the first day of Tishrei is the new year for counting years? What does that mean? Like what, if you have a, a Jewish calendar, that's when you get a new one from, from Kroger? Like what, what, what does it actually mean? Like lahalacha, huh? Or from Chabad, like Like what's the halachic, what's the legal ramification of that? In other words, let's, let's stop for a second. Let's stop for a second. The fact that this year is 5782 and Rosh Hashanah, Tishrei 1, which is Rosh Hashanah, 50, is now 5783. What does that legally, what does that actually change? What does that actually do? If you're signing a check, you know to write 5782 or 5783? Not that anyone's doing that anyway. But like, what is, what's the halachic ramification of it being the next year? So here we go. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, page 2 of the handout. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak said, when the Mishnah says that the first of Tishrei is the new year for years, it is with regard to judgment. Aha. Which means that Rosh Hashanah is judgment day. It's the beginning of a new year for judgment. 
And I need to now, well, okay, let's, I'm, I'm going to drop a bomb soon. All right. Let's continue. As on that day, Rav Nachman by Yitzhak continues to say, as on that day, God judges the world for the whole year. In other words, what does it mean that Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei, is the Rosh Hashanah for the year, is the new, is the new year for years? It means it's the new year for the, it's the beginning, it's the first of the judgment for the year. As it is written, and now we have a verse from Deuteronomy, where it's all based on Torah. It is written, a land that the Lord your God cares for, the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year until the end of the year. What does that mean? That God is looking from the beginning of the year, what's going to happen already to the end of the year. That means from the beginning of the year, Rav Nachman concludes, judgment is passed as to what will happen at the end of the year. The judgment takes place in one-year segments. The beginning of the year, God judges what's going to happen that year all the way to the end of the year. Judgment is determined as to what's going to happen that entire calendar year. And then the next Rosh Hashanah is again day of judgment. The Gemara... Okay, now I need to share with you the bomb. Ready? I, I probably should have started the class with this. I realize I missed an opportunity. Um... To ask you a free association, what do you associate Rosh Hashanah with? And a lot of things would have come up. Apples and honey, and synagogue, and tashlich, and feeding the fish, and atoning for our sins, right? New resolutions, and all, hearing the shofar, how did I miss that? But some of you would have said, day of judgment, had we done this. And then I would have asked, had we done this, how do you know it's day of judgment? And here's what you need to know. The Torah never says explicitly that it's a day of judgment. And yet, everybody knows that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. How do we know this? This is where the Talmud comes in. Every Jew knows. Every Jew knows that Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Every Jew is a student of the Talmud without even knowing it. Every Jew follows the Talmud. The Talmud is, is, the, is the work that, that, that describes how we know that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Because if you look, and I challenge anyone to do this, look throughout the five books of Moses, any reference to Rosh Hashanah is on the seventh month, the first day of the month, it's a holiday, it's a day of sounding shofar, you will not find the words, Yom Hadin, day of judgment, you will not find it, not once. The Talmud explains how we know this. Now we know this because from the beginning it's always been a day of judgment. But how do we know it? Where do we see it in the sources? The Talmud begins to develop it right here. Okay, let's jump back in. Um, hold on. Let me make sure I have the right document open. Give me a second here. A little complicated for me when sharing Word documents, so please bear with me. Okay, here we go. The Gemara raises a question. You guys with me? Everybody with me? Second side, second paragraph. The Gemara raises a question. From where is it known that the day of judgment is in Tishrei? How do we know this? So now the Talmud gets into juxtaposition of two verses from Psalms. As it is written, the verse says, Psalms 81, verse number, one, verse number four says, Blow a shofar at the new moon at the cover time for our festival day. Now, which is the festival day on which the moon is covered, i.e. hidden? Again, it says, blow a shofar at the new moon at the cover time for our festival day. Which, which holiday is at the new moon when the moon is covered? In other words, when it's very small. 
The only Jewish holiday that's at the beginning of a month is Rosh Hashanah, is the first of Tishrei, because every other month falls out in the middle of the month, when the moon is full. Pesach, Passover, is the 15th of the month, full moon. Sukkot is the 15th of the month, full moon. The only holiday that occurs on Rosh, on, on Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month, which is the, the covered, when the moon is hidden, is Rosh Hashanah. So you must say the Talmud answers its own question. Again, it's a rhetorical question. You must say that this is Rosh Hashanah, which is the only festival that occurs at the beginning of a month when the moon cannot be seen. And it is written in the very next verse in Psalms, for this, for this is a statute for Israel, a judgment of the God of Jacob, implying that this is the day of judgment. And now you know the proof text for Rosh Hashanah being Yom Adin, day of judgment. Right here, Talmud, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, page 8a, that is your proof text right here that Rosh Hashanah is day of judgment. Because you look through Torah and you don't find it as day of judgment. Now we know it's day of judgment because we've, we've always been practicing it as a day of judgment. But if you want to know where you find it in the sources and the verses, here's where you have it. Now, with regard to the same verse, the sage is taught in a bright, the bright that also comes from the, from the era of the Mishnah, but it just it was pieces that ended up in the, on the cutting room floor, as it were. It didn't end up in the Mishnah, so there's another publication called the Brayta, which is all the other stuff that didn't make it in. So the sage taught in a Brayta regarding the same verse, for this is a statue for Israel, a judgment of the God of Jacob. This teaches us that the heavenly court does not assemble for judgment until the earthly court has sanctified the month. Once the Sanhedrin is declared that day as Rosh Hashanah. So where do we see that from the verse? The verse says, for this is a statute for Israel, and then it says a judgment of the God of Jacob. God does not make a move until Israel makes a move. In other words, until, this back in the day we didn't have calendars, it was all done by the court with witnesses seeing the moon, determining when Rosh Chodesh, and thus in this case Rosh Hashanah would be. It's only when the court determines when the beginning of the month is, of Tishrei, then God says, all right, I agree, it's Rosh Hashanah. So it begins with Israel and then it concludes with the God of Jacob. We set the calendar and then God follows along with that calendar. That's a powerful idea, by the way, that we set the tone in many ways in our relationship with God. And that's, uh, we can elaborate that. The, the Kabbalist, this, that's a Kabbalistic concept that can be elaborated on at length, but we'll leave it for right now. And this is what I wanted to get to also as we conclude this little section. It is taught in, in another Brayta, the verse states, for this is a statute for Israel. From here I have derived only that this Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment for the Jewish people. From where do I derive that it is also a day of judgment for the other nations of the world? Therefore the verse states, a judgment for the God of Jacob who rules over the entire world. So again, the two halves of the verse. The verse says, for this is a statute for Israel, a judgment of the God of Jacob. So the first half of the verse implies that it's a judgment day for the Jewish people. The second half implies that it's judgment day for all humankind, including the other nations as well. And this is Talmud, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, page 8a, that shares with us the proof text and the sources for how we know that Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin, a day of judgment. And all of this explains the Mishnah. All of this was the Gemara, and it explains the Mishnah. The Mishnah, when it says the first day of Tishrei is the new year for counting years, what does that mean for counting years? It means for judgment, according to Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. It's for, it's for judgment. What happens on Rosh Hashanah is that we are judged what will happen for the rest of the year. Um, yes, Michael, question. Yeah, so, so I want to get back to, to what you started over. One of the things you said starting off, you know, there's only one Torah. And by that you were, as I understand it, putting all the, the writings in that category. 
Yeah. What you're quoting now are things from Psalms. Yeah. And, and I'm just kind of curious, how do you, you know, how do we, you know, reconcile? I mean, you're putting Psalms at the same level in effect, you know, the same, giving the same, uh, you know, Credence. importance yeah. as uh, Torah. Torah is written by God. Right. But Psalms are written by people. Right. Right. Correct. So, so how do we, how do we, you know, it just struck me that, that how do we say, you know, you're now taking Psalms as being a definitive source. Right. Good, good and question. That was, people wrote that. Yeah, we don't. Uh, so, 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 two, a few points. Number one, Psalms is part of Torah Shabbat the written Torah. It's one of the twenty-four books of of Torah. When we, this is lesson one of that course that I've been referring to. Lesson one talks about when we talk about Torah. What is it? Five books or is it twenty-four books? So, when we when we refer to Torah Shabbat the written Torah, it includes Psalms. It includes the Book of Ruth. It includes Isaiah and Ezekiel and and and. Um, Jeremiah and, and Judges and Samuel. It includes all of those books and others, 24 holy books of Scripture, and they're all considered to be divinely inspired, whether not, even if not dictated by God to Moses, but divinely inspired, and therefore they are, they are, um, Tarshab Aksav are areas of Torah that you can learn and be medayic, and you can analyze the actual words that are used and make inferences from them. After that Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah, you cannot make exact um, implica- um, uh, inferences from the wording that's used because that's the oral tradition that's written down. It's more of the concepts and not the, the language itself. Now, you can study the language to figure out the concepts, certainly, and, and we get into the nitty-gritty, but not to the same level. So to your point, Psalms is obviously not on the same level as the five books of Moses, but it is still up there as being derivable and learnable from now, that's number one. Number two, in this case, as I mentioned before, in this case, we know what Rosh Hashanah is. It's always been Rosh Hashanah. Here, the Talmud is, at, is essentially saying, where do you find a hint in Scripture that alludes to this? It's like, we know it. It's our family story. We know it's Rosh Hashanah. But where do you find a hint to it? So we have a, a verse in Psalms. That's not, that's, not how, that's not how we figured it. That's not how we figured it out. It's not how we created Rosh Hashanah out of a verse from Psalms. It's how a verse in Psalms is backing up what we, what we observe as Rosh Hashanah as a day of judgment. But day of judgment, it always was. Day of judgment, it always was. Um, but it's interesting, again, that the Torah itself doesn't call it that. It calls it a day of shofar sounding. It calls it a holiday. It calls it a day of ascension from work. Day of judgment before the Torah was delivered because there was some... You know, there was it was the birth of Adam and Eve. It, was it the day of judgment before Sinai? I'm not sure. That's a good question. Was it observed in any measurable fashion beforehand? Well, we've known it at least from Sinai. I think your question is, do we know it from before Sinai? It says that I think the binding of Isaac was on Rosh Hashanah when he took when when Abraham took the ram instead of uh, his son as an offering. Uh, we have to look back at you know I'm I'm. Rosh Hashanah time, we're all familiar with, uh, with all these pieces again. We're back in the topic to look up all these various sources. But look, there's a lot to talk about on this, but hopefully this is giving a, a bit of a frame of reference. Now, I want to move on to the next, to a Mishnah that appears on page 16a. Fast forward eight pages in the Talmud, eight double-sided pages of a lot of, lot of words. And uh, th- there's another Mishnah that talks about judgment and another piece of Gemara that brings a four-way dispute, and this is going to be relevant to our mystical conversation today. Mishnah says, at four times of the year, the world is judged. Okay, speaking of judgment, 
at four times a year the world is judged. On Passover, which we just celebrated, judgment is passed concerning grain. So grain is judged. You know, how the land is going to grow and how the plants are going to... Grain is judged on, or the judgment for grain happens on Pesach, on Passover. On Shavuot, judgment happens concerning fruits that grow on a tree. Okay? On Rosh Hashanah, which is, right, the Jewish New Year, or the, yeah, the New Year, all creatures pass before him like a sheep. As it is stated, he who fashions their hearts alike who considers all their deeds. So in other words, it's for human beings. Again, um, grain, Passover. Trees and fruit, Shavuot. People, Rosh Hashanah. And on the festival of Sukkot, they are judged concerning water, i.e. the rainfall for the coming year. Yes? So far, so good. Let's continue Gemara. The Gemara cites now four opinions. It is taught... Oh, I should have changed this. Uh, I can't write. Four agreements. I'm changing it online to four agreements. By the way, four agreements, if I'm not mistaken, is a book. Anybody familiar with that book, The Four Agreements? Can anyone corroborate that? Four Agreements? It's a pretty famous book. All right, Four Agreements or Four Opinions. I know it says Four Opinions. I changed it online here because I have a Word document open. I wrote this so I can change it. I feel like I have that uh, ability. Gemara. It is taught in a Brighta. All are judged, in other words, human beings are judged on Rosh Hashanah, and their sentence is sealed on Yom Kippur. Sounds familiar? Right? And the judgment is Rosh Hashanah, and the sentence is sealed in Yom Kippur. Uh-oh. It's one opinion. This is the statement of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yehuda says, all of these are sages from the time of the Mishnah. Even though it's quoted in the Gemara, these are all Mishnaic era sages known as Tanoim. I'm going to add another wrinkle here, information, that I'm not going to test you on later. Don't worry. Mish- Mishnah era rabbi sages are called Tanoim. Talmud era sages are called Amarayim. Tanoim Amarayim. Different levels of scholarship. Tanoim. So Rabbi, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Yaisi, Rabbi Natan, they're all Tanoim. So Rabbi Meir said, judgment happens in Rosh Hashanah, sends to Siliam Kippur. Next, Rabbi Huda says, second paragraph, all are judged on Rosh Hashanah and their senses sealed each in its own time. Look at that. Everything, he says, is judged on Rosh Hashanah. Not only human beings, everything. And, but the senses sealed, not in Yom Kippur, throughout the year. On Passover, the senses sealed concerning great. On Shavuot, concerning fruits that grow on a tree. On the festival of Sukkot, they are judged concerning water. And mankind is judged on Rosh Hashanah, and the sentence is sealed in Yom Kippur. Are you with me on this? So what Rabbi Yehuda says is everything, not only human beings, everything is judged on Rosh Hashanah, but it's not sealed until Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot for various things, and Yom Kippur for human beings. Human beings have a much shorter window, 10 days. Rabbi Yossi says, third opinion. A person is judged every day. Huh. Look at that. Forget Rosh Hashanah. Happens every day. And not just once a year. And he brings a proof text. As a state, he brings from Job. Michael, if this doesn't, doesn't get, you, get you going, I don't know what will. And he brings a proof from Job. And he says, as it's stated, you visit him every morning. Meaning that every morning an accounting is made and a judgment is passed. According to Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Natan says, also from Job, nope. A person is judged every hour. I remember living in New York, there was 10-10 wins. You give us whatever minutes, we'll give you the world, like on the hour. It's 10 o'clock. A person is judged every hour, as it is stated, you try him every moment. 
which means essentially every hour. This is the Talmud, sorry, this, this is from the Talmud, Tractate Rosh Hashanah. We had the opening Mishnah 2a. We had the opening Talmud on that Mishnah, which was 8a. Then we had a second Mishnah and second Talmud, which was, second Gemara, which was 16a. And what, what emerges, and I want to focus on this last piece of Gemara, what emerges is there are really four opinions as to how the judgment and the sentence uh, works out. Although the truth is, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda agree with regards to human beings. I don't know if you noticed that. Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda agree with human beings that the judgment is Rosh Hashanah and the sentence is Yom, sends a seal in Yom Kippur. Rabbi Yehuda also said that, right? Mankind is judged on Rosh Hashanah and sends a seal in Yom Kippur. And again, this is Jew, non-Jew. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, um, judgment happens Rosh Hashanah, sends a seal in Yom Kippur. Then we have, so really there's three opinions because these two are, are the same with regards to human beings. Then Rabbi Yossi says the judgment happens every day. Rabbi Natan says the judgment happens every hour or maybe even every moment, as it were. And that's the way the Talmud goes. That's the way the Talmud reads. And everybody reads it as a three-way dispute with regards to when the judgment happens. Until we study Kabbalah. And Kabbalah says that these are... I'm just going to continue to modify my, uh, my, 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 uh, my document here. There are three agreements. There aren't different opinions. They all agree. Yes, it seems like they're disagreeing because the first two opinions talk about humans being judged in Rosh Hashanah and being sealed in Yom Kippur. The second opinion says the judgment is every day. The third opinion says the judgment happens every hour. It seems like they're disagreeing. But they're really talking about different judgments, as we'll see today. They're talking about different judgments. In other words, they all agree with each other. They all agree that one judgment happens Rosh Hashanah and it's sealed on Yom Kippur, and another judgment happens every day, and another judgment happens every hour. They all agree. How could that be? It's like the famous story with the two litigants, the two community members that come before the rabbi. You guys know this one, right? They come before the rabbi, and they're each saying their side of the case, and the rabbi hears the first one, and he says, you're right. Here's the second one, says, you're right. And from the kitchen, his wife says, how can they both be right? And he says to her, you're also right. You're also right. Three opinions, and they're all right. I wrote in the email on Friday, we always say two Jews, three opinions. Three Jews, who knows? The, the possibilities are endless as to how many opinions, right? If two, opinion, if two people can have three opinions, three people, exponentially greater, number of, number of opinions. But in today's class, we're going to take three opinions and make them one. Make them one through the power of Kabbalah. The power of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, we're going to reconcile all the opinions and say when this one said Rosh Hashanah, when this one said every day, when this one said every hour, they were just looking at the elephant from different places as I started today's class. They're looking at the same thing and saying the same thing, just describing different elements. But it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. To understand what this means, actually what this means, Let's jump into our text. Discourse 20, chapter 1. Let me pass these around. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well. We're now jumping into our mystical text. So again, I, just, I hope that the, the formula for today has made sense. We did a bit of an intro into the various areas of Torah. We then took a deep dive into the Talmud, studying Mishnah and Gemara. And then we're now studying the Kabbalah that's going to reconcile what otherwise sits as a Talmudic dispute. If you study Talmud a hundred times, you'll walk away and conclude that different opinions, they disagree. 
until you study Kabbalah. And Kabbalah says, actually, they agree. They're just talking about different things. A person says, you know I love Chabad? <laughs> you know what Chabad is? They have great classes. Somebody says, you know why I love Chabad? They have a great Hebrew school. You know why I love Chabad? Shalant on Shabbos? Ah, to live for. It's a machaya. You know why I love Chabad? They have great, uh, whatever it is. Are they disagreeing? Wow, don't all answer at once. <laughs> They're not disagreeing. They're just speaking about different features. So the one who says there's a judgment in Rosh Hashanah, and the one who says there's a judgment every day, and the one who says there's a judgment every hour, they're not disagreeing. They're speaking of different types of judgment, different elements of the judgment, as we shall see. It sounds obvious when you read it. Like in Kabbalah, it sounds obvious that there's no dispute. But when you read in the Talmud, it definitely reads like a dispute. It definitely reads like different opinions that are disagreeing with each other. God determines how well the trees are going to grow and how much rain is going to fall and what that looks like. It's fluid. It's a fluid thing. You mean the judgment is fluid? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let, let's, let's get into it. We're going to read it inside. Good. Let's jump in. Discourse 20, Chapter 1. Rabbi Yosei, Rabbi Natan, and Rosh Hashanah. There you go. This is page 286 in your books. 286, if you have a book, Overcoming Folly, it's 286. It's on the screen. It's in your, the printouts as well. Discourse 20, chapter 1. The statement about the daily judgment of man, as we just read, is Rabbi Yosei's opinion in Rosh Hashanah 16a. We literally just read it. Rabbi Yosei says a person judges every day. It's... It's right there. If you still have, for those here in person, it's, uh, it's literally right there. Okay, that was Rabbi Yosef's opinion. Rabbi Natan says that the judgment is hourly, which we also just read. As the verse says, you test him each moment. And that, in, the, in this case, is referring to hourly. By the way, yeah, no, by the way. Okay, let's continue. So the question has been asked. He asked an obvious question. It's a klotzkasha. It's a question that makes our assumption about the Talmud seem ludicrous. The question has been asked that according to both Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan, it seems like there's no difference between Rosh Hashanah and every day of the year in terms of the heavenly judgment. Correct? If you did a simple reading of the Talmud where Rabbi Yossi says, eh, a person is judged every day. Rabbi Natan says, a person is judged every hour. So then you would ask these rabbis, hey, Rabbi Yossi, how's it going? Good, okay got a simple question for you. Is there a difference between Rosh Hashanah and every day of the year? What's it going to say? No. How then will they explain the passage for it is a decree for Israel, a judgment for the God of Jacob, which refers to Rosh Hashanah, right? Didn't we have the other piece of Talmud that talks about Rosh Hashanah being judgment day? Remember from Psalms 81? The Rosh Hashanah, we learned that the Rosh Hashanah is, that was a proof text that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. So one second, how did they explain that verse? How does Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan explain that verse? What happens Rosh Hashanah? Nothing? If judgment day is every day, so what happens when the mood is concealed when the shofar is sounded? There's no special judgment? What's going on here? That's question number one. Question number two, furthermore, the verse says the eyes, again, we read this in the Talmud before, the eyes of your God are upon it 
from the year's beginning to the year's end. And based on this, the Talmud, which we read, Rosh Hashanah 8a, the Talmud states that Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year regarding judgment. So, did they disagree with that? Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Natan disagree with that? That Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment or beginning of the year regarding judgment? How did they disagree? There's a verse in Torah, the eyes of your God are upon it from the beginning to the end. Another difficulty is the three-part worship recited on Rosh Hashanah, namely Malchiot, Zechronot, and Shofrot. Those are prayers that are amended or that are, that are included in the Musaf afternoon prayer on Rosh Hashanah. So he asks again the obvious question, why should this day be distinguished from the other days, according to Rabbi Yossi Natan? It is inconceivable that Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan will maintain that Rosh Hashanah is not different from ordinary days. In other words, he's asking, I'm going to put in my own words, I'm going to stop sharing for a moment and just speak, speak clearly. Rabbi Yossi says, God judges us every day. So we can turn to Rabbi Yossi and ask, okay, so every day is Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, so why are we not praying to God like we do on Rosh Hashanah every day? Why are we only doing that on Rosh Hashanah? Praying for our lives. What's going on? If, it's, if the judgment's every day, do you show up, Rabbi Yossi, do you show up to Shul on Rosh Hashanah? What are you doing on Rosh Hashanah? You're saying special prayers? Why? If it happens every day. How do you explain the verses that talk about God looking at the world from the beginning of the year to the end of the year? That seems like something special happens in the beginning of the year that goes all the way through to the end of the year. So, is Rosh Hashanah not special to you, Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan? It doesn't make any sense. So here, these are questions that lead to the obvious conclusion that they would also agree that something happens in Rosh Hashanah, but something else happens every day of the year, another form of judgment, and all the opinions will be reconciled. Let's continue inside. We must conclude that there is no disagreement at all on this point. You love that? Look at that line. Right? Uh, paragraph 1, 2, 3, 4. Fourth paragraph on page 286. We must conclude that there is no disagreement at all on this point. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, according to all opinions, are days of judgment. Indeed, it says in Asar Mamara, Maim Rachikar Din, 2.1 and 2.26, state that there is an agreement that there's agreement on the subject. Everyone agrees. Let's, we're getting mystical right now. Everyone agrees that the beneficence destined for each creature is determined then, i.e. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And that's why, hence, we offer the particular prayers, Malch, Malchiot, which refers to God's kingship, Zechronot, God's remembering us, Shofrot, and the, the, the prayers regarding the Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. That's why we do those special prayers on Rosh Hashanah. Why? That you might crown over him, that, that you might crown me over you, and so on, etc. We say those special prayers because everyone agrees that the beneficence, the blessings, destined for each creature is determined on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Even Rabbi Yosei and Rabbi Natan that talk about a daily judgment and an hourly judgment, everyone agrees that Rosh Hashanah is when the beneficence is destined and determined. Let's continue, bottom paragraph, bottom line on 286. The which means... The uh, inspiring God to be king that happens in the highest world of emanation. That happens also, that takes place between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's, again, everyone agrees with this. This is a fact. It's a non-disputable fact. That the beneficence is determined on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That the Binyan Amalchus, the, the, the encouraging God, as it were, to reinvest in creation that happens between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then an Elah, again, this is across the board, and then an Elah, Malchut, receives from the five severities of Atik. All of these are things that we've explained over the last few months. Malchut and Elah, the, the close of Yom Kippur, the closing service, is when 
the judgment, as it were, of beneficence, the blessings, divine to five severities. Five severities means like the finger. We, we used the, the example of a hand and, a fi- and fingers before. Um, you have a hand. Imagine a hand didn't have fingers. It would be like a, a paw, I guess. It would have limited, limited functionality. The dexterity that we have, right? The ability that we have to, um, to, manip- to do a lot of things, the fine motor uh, uh, movement that we have is because of the fingers being separated. So what happens at Ni'ilah on Yom Kippur is that the general blessing flow that was determined starts now dividing out into different specific areas. It gets a little bit more specific. Let's continue. Let's read this inside. This is the elicitation of the source of energy for Biyah. Those are the lower three worlds, Briyatia Asir, for the entire year. I.e., in other words, on Rosh Hashanah, the beneficence is elicited as it has been allotted for the world in general. So there's a general allotment on Rosh Hashanah. And at Ne'ilah, the closing service of Yom Kippur, so Rosh Hashanah, we're bookending the, the High Holy Days. Rosh Hashanah, the general blessing is... That's, it's stirred or it's elicited for the year for the, and for the world in general. And at Ni'ilah, there is the sealing and specific determination of the beneficence allotted each person individually. All agree on this. That's the key line of 288. All agree on this. This is indisputable. Even Rabbi Yosin, Rabbi Natan, and the Talmud who talk about a daily and hourly judgment, they're showing up in Shulan Rosh Hashanah and saying the special prayers. They're there in the Elah and talking about how the judgment is being sealed. They're not disagreeing with that. Everyone agrees that that happens. That on Rosh Hashanah, there's a general... I mean, think about, like... I've used the example of invest... Um, of investing before, right? You have a startup, you have a company and you want an investment and you ask for money. And so imagine you have an organization that seeds money and imagine their budget is $10 million. This year, they're going to allocate $10 million to projects in the city. That's their budget. Let's say, let's say this organization is, is, is about beautifying Atlanta, making Atlanta beautiful, making it even more beautiful. That's their, that's their mandate. And they have a $10 million budget. When does that $10 million budget get determined that it's $10 million and not 9 or not 11 Rosh Hashanah. Are you with me on this? Rosh Hashanah is when that gets determined. I'm not actually speaking about an organization that does that, but the, the allegory, the parallel would be Rosh Hashanah is when God determines the overall budget for the world, for the entire universe. At Ne'ilah on Yom Kippur, he just said, what happens at Ne'ilah... At the end of that time period, the end of those 10 days, there's the sealing and specific determination of the benefits allotted to each person individually. So then you have a Ne'ila determination of how much of that $10 million, how much is going to Trees Atlanta, how much is going to, I don't know, how much is going to the parks, how much is going to the, I'm like running out of possibilities here in my head. Well, we're beautifying Atlanta. So what's going to make it beautiful? I think of trees, huh? Right. Oh, picking up a good trash, right, uh, removing trash, and, right, so you have, and so now you have, okay, two million here, three million here, five million there, done. That's Ni'ila, so that you have the hand that splits into fingers. You with me on that? Yeah, the general flow, the general allocation, and now it's being divided into individual units. Are we done? Of course not. Not yet. Hence the daily judgment and the hourly judgment, which, which is what we're about to see inside. 
Nonetheless, Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan maintain that man is judged daily or hourly with a full-fledged judgment for all his affairs, for illness, for health, for life, and so on. It didn't just happen in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and now you can go home and, and, and just like watch TV for the rest of the year. No, this is a daily, a daily um, situation, a daily judgment, full-fledged judgment with regards to all the details, health, life, etc. This repeated judgment is necessary. Why? Didn't, didn't we already go through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Aren't we done? No, because the beneficence, a lot of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur has been elicited to Malchot Avatzilut, to that supernal realm. It's the lowest part of the spiritual realm of emanation. But at that point, it is without any mundane description or image. It, what does it look like? It, doesn't, it hasn't taken on any physical form or any physical depiction. For Asiya, which is our physical world, has no term of comparison. It's unrelatable with Atzilut, that highest mystical realm. Therefore, though all influences for the material world do issue from Atzilut on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the judgment has not been finalized clearly yet. What form shall be the beneficence? What form shall the beneficence assume? Whether for children, health, prosperity, or for all three, or in spiritual terms, or in the world to come. In other words, going back to my example, yes, two million dollars was allocated of the ten million. Two million was allocated to the parks, but for what? But for what? Administration, hiring more staff, plant more trees. Build new parks? What are you using the $2 million for? Specifically, what's it, what's it being budgeted for? What's it going to? That's what he says. On Rosh Hashanah, you have a lot of movement. On Yom Kippur, you have even more movement. Rosh Hashanah, you have the big allocation for the entire world. Yom Kippur, it's determined like the fingers separating everyone what they get. But it's still general. It's still undetermined. It's still, it's, still, it's still undetermined. It's still unspecified. In other words... What, as he says here, I still have it highlighted on the screen. It's still not decided yet what form the beneficence shall assume. Whether it's for children, whether it's for health, whether it's prosperity, or for all three, or whether it's going to remain spiritual, or whether it's going to remain in the world to come as a reward for the soul after its journey on earth. It's not yet determined how that $2 million is going to be allocated. Is it going to be $2 million for administration, for planting trees, for building new parks, for cleaning up the parks, right? For built, putting in a lake in a park, for putting in rowboats in the lake in the park, for putting in playgrounds for kids, or skate parks for teenagers? What's it going to look like? Who determines that? When is that determined? That's why after the judgments of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you still need more meetings. You still need more judgments. That's what Rabbi Yossi says. The judgment determining the form of the beneficence. Not the beneficence itself, but the form as we just described. That takes place in the heavenly court in the chambers of Bria and Yitzira and so on. Every, every world, successive world, it takes, the judgment takes place there. And this is the daily judgment as explained, as we explained previously. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the judgment is to determine the beneficence to be bestowed upon creation in general and to each individual being, how much is to be allotted to him. Like I said before, you have the general budget and then you have the specific budget for each department. But we still don't know what the departments are going to do with it or how it's going to be allocated within the department. This is the core of the judgment and everything depends on it. 
According to the generosity of this allotment, the blessing and goodness will fall throughout the year. In other words, he's trying to explain why Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur are so important. Because if you don't get that two million, you can't build a new park, put in a new playground, build a skate park, put in a lake, put in robots. You can't do any of that if the if the budget's dry. So Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the, probably the most important part, which is to make sure that you got you got a budget to work with throughout throughout the year. Right? And, and according to, the, I'm going to read this again, according to the generosity of this allotment, the blessing and goodness will fall throughout the year, which is not the case if it is a limited allotment, God forbid. If instead of two million, the, the, the department gets, the parks department gets 100,000, well, guess what? There go the big plans for the year. Yeah, you, can't, you can't do all that stuff on, on $100,000. It's not going to happen. Right? So God forbid, again, referring back now to human beings, if we don't get, not we, if somebody doesn't get Big allotment, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, then they're dealing with a limited, a limited piece of the pie, as it were. Not that it's a, not it's a zero-sum game, but a, a limited bandwidth. We have explained previously that when the beneficence is plentiful, there may be a full measure of kindness and sh- children, health, and prosperity. If you get a full, a full bandwidth of blessing, if you get a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of blessing, then it can be divided. If you get $2 million, you could... I mean, two is maybe small. If you get $100 million... Whatever. You can then divide it into different areas and everyone's got plenty. At times, it may not be possible to grant all three because, again, the original allotment is too small. But only two or one of them, even if all three are granted, there's a difference if it will be generous or, God forbid, limited. In other words, if it goes to all three, well, how robust is it all three, children, health, and prosperity? Um, this depends on the general determination a beneficent set at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for creation in general, and for the individual in particular, whether it is to be generous or the opposite. I'm going to give an example of Wi-Fi or bandwidth or internet connection because we all deal with this, right? If you get, like I have Google Fiber, you get like one gig of, of, of internet band, of, of speed with large bandwidth. I don't know what the bandwidth exactly is. Then you can probably have three laptops, a desktop, four mobile devices, and everyone's still cruising the internet. If you're getting in a very limited amount of internet into your house, and now you have like 10 devices, you're going to be crawling. So who determines the bandwidth, the initial bandwidth, that's Rosh Hashanah Kippur. And then the allocation, how that, what is it, QO, what's the, when you put the order of the, of devices, like what should take precedent? there's, There's a name for this. I'm looking at, no, it's like the, whatever. There's like, a, like an acronym for this, like a three-letter acronym. Bottom line is, you know, are you going to give more bandwidth? Are you going to be able to power internet-wise? Are you going to be able to power your smartphone, your, your, your tablet, your laptop, and your desktop? Are you able to get all three, or is one of them you know, not going to make it? The, the, clear, the easiest example, to, to, if you remember the AOL days, remember AOL? You got the little disc, and, you got, and it was through a, through a phone connection. Remember that phone connection? Right? It, no, it made the, that's the cell phone. Dial-up, thank you, dial-up. Remember dial-up? Somebody called you in the middle of, of, of the internet browsing session and your internet went out because now you're on the phone? Remember that? Remember those days when the internet was fun? I'm kidding. Right? So that's, uh, that's a problem because you didn't have enough. It's either this or that. It's not going to be both. <laughs> my, kids have, my kids have flip phones. The kids have flip phones. Intentionally have flip phones, not smartphones. In yeshiva. Which they 
the younger one can't even use throughout the week. He only gets a certain amount of certain times. Anyway, it's a, it's a healthy thing. So they actually have a phone. He has a phone. Oh, but if I text him, if I text him while he's on the phone, guess what? His phone, he can't read the text message when he's on the, when he's on a phone call. It's one data or another at the same time. It's not going to be both. His phone. I can't believe they still make these things. Alcatel is the, not Alcatel, so Alcatel makes it. Anyway, it's, he either is on the phone or he gets a text. I, I send him like if he needs an Uber. He's go, he landed in Chicago. He's got to get from the airport to Yeshiva. And he, has, he doesn't have a car. He's 15. How's he going to get there? So I Uber for him. But I want to tell him, I want to send him a picture, text message with a picture of the car so he knows which car to get in because safety first. So I send him the, I screenshot the Uber driver that's coming to Chicago here or Midway Airport, and I text it to him. And I'm like, do you see it? He's like, no, I'm on, the, I'm, I'm on the call with you. I'm like, okay, hang up, check your message, call me back, make sure that you got it. And that's how we do it. That's how we do it. He can see pictures, but not, but not while, but not while he's, uh, not while he's talking on the phone. Not when it comes in at the same time. Here's my point: Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur allocates for every person individually because it's the thing, right? Allocates for every person how much is in the bucket, and you want the biggest bucket, you want the biggest flow pile, you want the, you want the two terabyte, you want the two gigabytes, or whatever it is of, of speed. You want the, you want a lot of bandwidth. But every day it's going to be determined where specifically it goes. Hey, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? Hold, hold on one second, one second. Donna, Why is it, I'm a little uh, confused about the terminology, God forbid, for, especially since it's God that determines it. God forbid somebody shouldn't get full blessings. God forbid. God should do that. That's okay. That's okay. 100% okay. Chas v'shalom that something bad should happen. 100%. God does everything. Who, what, how, what, something happens outside of God? It seems just as arbitrary as the trees because the trees, right, judging of the trees, you know, we know they have no decision-making power. And, and, and so here, basically, it's kind of the same. Who has no power? Well, we don't have any. Oh, we, we You're asking another question now, not about God forbid. I'm putting, I'm, I'm putting the humans in the same situation as the trees, yes. Okay, but we have, but we have, well, hold on, we're not done yet. Hold on, let, let's check this out. Nevertheless, okay, second to last paragraph on the last page, 290. This is where oh, we're almost at the end. Nevertheless, there is a particular judgment daily. What form the beneficence shall take. For example, if his alignment or Hashanah Yom Kippur permits two of the three areas of blessing, because the bandwidth is, is, is only sufficient for two of the three, so you can only have two devices, not three devices, being powered by this, uh, by this blessing, as it were. Which shall these be, whether children and health or prosperity and health and so on, as explained, as we explained in the last uh, discourse or two. If all three can be accommodated, even so, the judgment will, de- will decide whether to grant the beneficence in spiritual terms or in the world to come. Maybe it's not going to be a physical manifestation of children, prosperity, or health. Maybe it's going to be a spiritual manifestation of, of those elements, or one of those elements. Or maybe it's only going to, it's, the blessing is only going to hit in the world to come, in the afterlife. The beneficence, as it is said in Rosh Hashanah, gives no clue regarding the practical form in the material world. For this category, in other words, the practical category does not exist on that plane at all. In other words, where, what's happening on Rosh Hashanah 
is taking place in a realm that is not at all our realm. So those questions are not being answered on that level. It's a much higher level conversation to the, le- to, the, to, to, to the practical conversation that exists or that happens on a daily basis. It is decided by the heavenly court. Hence, according to his deeds, is the judgment in the chambers of Bria. Again, according to his deeds, and that's where we do have an influence. Both then are true. And this concludes the discourse, discourse 20, the primary judgment to determine the beneficence is made on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. However, a full-fledged judgment, in other words, a nitty-gritty full-fledged judgment of exactly how it's going to manifest, that takes place every day. And again, that key word that I highlighted, at least online before, um, is in accordance to his deeds. A person is judged. And we said that a few times in this, in this chapter of this discourse, because it's only one chapter of this discourse. So we've said a few times that it, we, do, we are not the trees. We do have the, it's based on our actions. It's based on our deeds. That is what, what helps determine the flow of it. Now, it would be very difficult to say that we are completely in control of our destiny to the point that there's nothing outside of that. And if we did everything right, we would get exactly what, what we wanted. We can never say that because obviously there's a din v'cheshman, there's a judgment and a decision making that happens outside of us. We are not in control. We can do our best and we're told here that there is this, this allotment that happens based on a daily judgment the, the main thrust of this, of this discourse and chapter is to reconcile the different positions in the Talmud. Whereas when you study the Talmud like we did earlier today, earlier this morning, when you study the Talmud, the Talmud seems to position it as a three-way dispute, whereas one opinion says that the judgment happens between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The other one says it happens every day. The other one says it happens every hour. In truth, all of these positions are correct. There's an allotment that happens, a general allotment, that's specific for the person, but it's still general. It's still, it's still unde- undetermined as to where it's going to go. That is determined Rosh Hashanah Kippur. And then you have a specific judgment and allotment that happens every single day, which is why we do mitzvahs every day. It's why we study Torah every day. It's why we pray every day. It's why we show up every day and we ask for the, the blessings of health. We ask for prosperity. We ask for blessings for our family. We ask for wisdom. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for Mashiach. We ask for all these things every single day because there is a daily judgment. That's why we pray every day, not just once a year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Michael. So, so I, w- I wanted to ask about uh, kind of turning this around in a way. And, and by the way, you know, I, I, I like the way you bring this together. And I, I think that something that, I don't want to say troubles me, but, but something that can be a little problematic is if we really only had one judgment a year, well, what's, why don't I just wait for that judgment, deal right. with it then, and the rest of the year I'll live on my own. One and okay? done, and yeah. Then next year I'll, I'll fix it again. Right. But, but what I'm wondering is, so you're looking at it as a budget that then, you know, over the course of the year, it's, it's, we determine how that budget is spent. What about the other way? Because I was thinking when you first brought this up that, that the other way of thinking about it is, is you turn it around and you say, no, we're judged every day. And what happens at Rosh Hashanah at the end of the year is an accounting, if you will. It's, it's when we look and say, OK, you know, here's how everything played out. And it, it gets to the same point is that we should, you know, every day we should be thinking that we're being judged. The right. reason I thought of that, I think, is that it's, it's kind of consistent with if you look at the way our legal system works. Right. I mean, if you do something, God forbid, you know, you break a law or something. Well, there's a judgment. By a police officer, maybe, or by, by, you know, other people who see what you did who say that was a wrong thing to do. And then later at some point, you know, maybe it goes before a court or whatever, or there's some kind of a mediation, you know, whatever happens. So, so it's kind of like that we, we, every day we should be conscious of what we're doing and we're being judged. And at the end of the year, there's a the big reckoning. Looks at all yeah. and says, okay, on, on balance, here's how it all plays yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's truth to that. But that positions Rosh Hashanah as simply a day of, in essence, a day to face the music. 
Whereas in Kabbalah, it's not only that, it's more than that, it's a day of reinvestment. It's a day of, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I hear what you're saying. But in Kabbalah, you typically find it, the emphasis on the other side of it. Not so much as, all right, it's a day of reckoning, which I would say day of reckoning is typically how it's understood in, 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 in the Velt, in the world. It's typically as, you know, a very serious day. And, and in Kabbalah and Chassidus, it's also a serious day, but you do have the element of the generosity on that day. There is an accounting, but then it's about, okay, so next year, what are we then allocating for the budget based on this? It's not just simply, you know, punishments being determined, but it's really also about the blessings and primarily about the blessings being determined. But you're right. Some of that is based on prior performance. It's like, like again, back to the money. So if we allocated $10 million, I know I keep on changing the, the numbers, but it's okay. Imagine you allocated $10 million to the, to, to the parks department and they only spent $5 million of it uh, in a way that made an impact, then maybe next year they're only going to get a $5 million budget. You're going to make a din v'cheshbon, you're going to make a judgment in accounting, you're going to go through an audit, and that's really El before Rosh Hashanah, you can make an audit and say, okay, so, no, I got these resources, what did I do? Did I need that? Did I need all that? And I, I mean, I take that a step further, because I thought of that when you were giving your analogy. You know, how do you decide it's $10 million or, or whatever? I mean, it's, it's you look at past performance. Exactly. It's, basically, it's not just whether you spent what I gave you last And that's why... And do, I, do I have confidence in you? Do I think you're going to spend this good. money? Good. Then I'll give you the money. And that's why in Russian, if you look at the English, if you look at the prayers in the, whatever language, in whatever language you understand, a lot of it essentially says God invest in us. And despite the fact that we weren't always so careful with whatever, you know, like, uh, still have faith. It's just trying to garner... Uh, um, or generate faith in, um, in uh, oh, 22, yeah, I'm looking at the chat out. Faith in, in, in us, my God. Wouldn't the daily judgments decide the allocation for Shana? Yeah, Adam is, yeah, Adam, that's along the lines of what Michael is saying. In other words, if the, the, the determination of every day is going to also factor into the next Rosh Hashanah, again, based on, on how it was used. But we ask God to be a little bit more generous then perhaps we deserve on Rosh Hashanah. Give us a big allocation. Give us a big budget. It's kind of like science. I know in a, a lot of the sciences you get, um, not grants, you get, um, what's it called? You get funding from the government. What is it? Grants? Yeah, pretty sure it is. Grants. It's a grant. It's like for research or a research grant. Yeah, I guess it's a grant. You get a grant. You, you get a grant and now you can do the research. You can't, how are you going to do the research if you don't have the money? You get, you get, so you have to apply and you have to petition. You have to, you know, show your past work and ha- hopefully they have confidence in you. And then they fund, hopefully, please God. And then you determine, I guess you determine, whatever. In this case, a little bit different. None of the examples that I'm giving are going to be exactly perfect, but these are just some things that I think about on the fly to, like, you know, bring it into our realm of understanding. But to me, again, just stepping outside of this, the beautiful idea here is that what appears to be a dispute in the Talmud is reconciled in Kabbalah. Because Kabbalah is getting us, thanks, Kabbalah is getting us to the core, the, the, the core essence of the conversation. It's not just, when does judgment happen? It's not a, a flat conversation. It's understanding what judgment is and what it means and what it looks like. And once you understand the, the soul of what's actually happening on the spiritual realms, judgment happens between Atzilot and Asiya, the other four worlds, and it's happening in different stages. Once you understand the spirituality, the cosmology of it, now you can understand how these three opinions are actually all agreeing with each other. It's just one is focusing on the original allocation, one's focusing on the more specific allocation, 
and et cetera. They're just focusing on different areas of that judgment allocation, but they're all essentially agreeing to the same core idea. Kabbalah, informing and explaining the Talmud. It's a beautiful thing. The Torah is one, and all of these truths speak together. So what's the moral of the story this week? Let us be inspired to do good things and to utilize God's resources, the resources that we have been given, whether it's the money, the health, the children, the family, etc. Whatever resource we do have, let us utilize it for a higher end and for a beautiful purpose. Let's uh, raise our families in the ways of Torah and mitzvot. Let's use our resources for good things to create a difference, a, a positive, positive change in the world. And let us use our strength to continue to help others in their mission as well. All right, quick announcement before we close it out. This week, we're starting a brand new course. And I'm telling you, you do not want to miss this course. It's called Beyond Right. Beyond Right. The Values That Shape Judaism Civil Code. It's a course on Talmud and ethics, Talmudic law and ethics. So if you enjoyed a little bit of the Talmud study that we did today, you're going to love this course. I'll give you, for those of you that are still staying around for a second, I'm going to read to you two of the case studies from lesson one. Michael moved into a new house. Before setting up his own Wi-Fi connection, he realized that his neighbors have an open Wi-Fi network. Can Michael use his neighbor's Wi-Fi network without their knowledge? Is that right, legal, or ethical? Next, Sarah's next-door neighbor, David, left on a lengthy vacation. It's difficult to find parking on their street, and David's driveway, situated smack in between their two homes, is now empty. Sarah wishes to park her car there while her neighbor is away. Should Sarah be allowed to park her car in David's vacant driveway without his advanced permission? These are two, these are two of the more basic, I, I left out the more elaborate case studies. These are two of the basic questions that we're going to address in the first lesson. The first lesson, you can always try it out free with no obligation to continue. Tuesday night at 8 on Zoom, Thursday at noon in person with lunch. Either way, your choice. Join us in town, jewishacademy.org slash law. You're going to love it. It's a great course. All right. Quick question. Are the two sessions the same? or is it, uh, Same. Same session. Different? Same session. You go to one or the other. One or the other. And uh, the course is approved for CLE. It's approved by the State Bar of Georgia and other states as well for CLE, Continuing Legal Education Credits, fully approved by the bar. That's the, the level of, um, of academia. All different jokes. I have a really great jokes. Oh, different jokes Tuesday and Thursday? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I have some good, I have some good content coming up. All right. And the, I have some good jokes, and also the content is not, not bad either. All right. We'll see you all. Thanks for joining. Have a wonderful day. Shavua Tov. Take care, Mariana. Take care, Adam and David. See you guys. And thanks for you guys being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me, and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.